You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Action! Excitement! Horror! Mad! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What Mad Universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. away from us in time and space, yet as close as a heartbeat, a world beyond infinity's end, a world which contains within itself more than a thousand thousand universes, all of time and space, and every possible permutation of humanity, a world of artificial life forms, sentient beings from outside our ken, astounding wonders and horrific terrors, a world of purple prose and lurid fantasies of the childish and the sophisticated, a world where some remain forever shackled to the will of tyrants, and others attain a truer freedom than any have experienced here on Earth. It is the world of the human imagination. The speculative fiction goes back to the very dawn of humanity and the origins of storytelling itself. The genres that we group under the title have a complicated history that passes through the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution the world of, to the world of pulp magazines in Hollywood. It's been seen as disposable, kid stuff, but it's also shaped our society in ways both inspiring and horrific. With this podcast, What Mad Universe, we aim to take a look at the history of genre fiction and the ways in which it has shaped the tropes and ideas that make up modern-day culture, from politics to psychology. Hi, I'm uh, Adam Prosser, and this is Philip Rice. Hi. Hello. Um, and uh, welcome to What Mad Universe. Uh, we've... Uh, We've recently joined the Greenlit Podcast Network, and we're uh, we're getting a lot more uh, viewers than we had before. So, uh, what we've decided to do here is to record uh, kind of a little prologue episode that gives you uh, an introduction to the show. Um, there was there was an episode one, which was kind of a proof of concept that we did. Uh, you know, the first thing uh, we'd ever done, and it was it was a little rough. Uh, it was I had, very we'd always rough. envisioned it. Yeah, it was done on like a, a a little, literally a tape recorder type, well, a microphone that could record uh, uh, digitally. And um, and it was the first so, podcast I'd ever been on, ever. <laughs> yeah, right. So we were all very green. So um, we basically decided that, you know, as, as interesting as that was, historically speaking, uh, we would uh, we would basically stow that away and make that a Patreon uh, special, a uh, kind of a bonus episode. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, not... it was on our um, namesake, a book called What Mad Universe by, um... oh jeez, <laughs> Frederick Brown. Frederick, yeah, Frederick Brown. Thank you. Sorry, it, it slipped my mind there. It's been so long yeah. ago, no. <laughs> um, which was a very interesting book about a um, uh, a science fiction editor who gets 
trapped in a science fiction type universe and it was written in, uh, or published in 1949 so it's a very early example of the sort of galaxy quest-ish you know um, meta, meta, yeah, it's meta, meta commentary on the sci-fi genre right it's 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 um it's sort of yeah it's it's literally um what if uh, someone who knew you know pulp sci-fi and had an ambivalent relationship with it fell into a pulp science fiction universe and it's a very good encapsulation of sort of a lot of the tropes of pulp sci-fi um and it it, it and it even you know, stands at an interesting point in the history of what we'd think of as sci-fi and fantasy as well. So it was a good, you know, it was a good uh, book to talk about at the beginning. Um, uh, but like I say, we were a little raw and we were a little green. Uh, so we, uh, we're we going to make that available to Patreons and we'll give you all the information for that uh, at the end of the show. Uh, but right now we'll just sort of give you a, a sort of quick overview. So this we're doing this now after having done... Uh, like a season and a half of episodes. So this is, uh, we, we're well established at this point. Um, we've been recording. We've had uh, a number of guests on the show. We've had um, Jess Nevins of uh, the Encyclopedia of uh, Fantastical Victoriana. And um, uh, he's been on the show a couple times. He's great. Uh, Zach Handlin, who, uh, who wrote for the Onion AV Club and has done a number of other things. He's, uh, he was on the show. And we've had Andrew Hickey of... Um, science justice leak blog and uh he's the uh uh he also does the uh history of rock music and 500 songs podcast which is really excellent uh but he's also a science fiction guy he knows a lot of sci-fi so he uh, we did a couple of good shows with him and uh, also oh, also our friend Ing. yeah james james riley english was on us as well i was gonna i was gonna mention him <laughs> he was okay. he was the one who uh he uh he told us all about um the anime, because we did an episode that was tangentially related to anime, so he was our expert. Oh, and uh, Dylan Roth as well. Oh yeah, and Dylan Roth from uh, Dylan Roth and uh, and uh, Will Will, uh, aka Philby Pot, uh, who uh, who, but they were our Star Wars, Star Trek, and Star Wars experts respectively, because we did episodes on Star Trek and Star Wars. Um, so because we are boring, so, yeah. So um, we uh. Sorry, Philip, how did it go when we were kind of talking about launching this podcast? Basically, you, you, uh, we were, we had this whole discussion, and you, you kind of knew all about uh, like nineteenth-century stuff. Yeah, well, not all about. I'm, I'm not Jess Nevins, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I, I know a fair bit. I, I like, I like this stuff. Um, um, I don't have the full encyclopedic, you know. I haven't read every single of these books, um, and I, I am coming to a lot of these new, even if I have some background stuff with some of the other with some of the authors and so forth. Um, but um, I, I think I have a fairly good grounding in 19th century, mm -hmm. um, at least uh, certain kinds of of pulp. Well, you do kinds of science fiction. Yeah, you, you do. You do a comic book uh, called the or a comic called the uh, the Apex Society. Yeah. And it's it's sort of um, I, I jump around in time. It's sort of inspired by Astro City in that respect, but it's it's sort of a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen esque thing, but with um, not just public domain characters, but also uh, original characters and characters based on like obviously based on like a Doc Savage or a Shadow, um, and uh, it, it jumps around to different time periods and sort of follows different eras of pulp fiction and adventure storytelling and all in the same universe. Right. 
and uh, yeah, between your knowledge of that stuff and me being a, a guy, I'm I'm sort of more into the post World War II and maybe a little bit uh, the just around the World War II and pre World War II era, uh, you know. So I was fairly knowledgeable about that stuff. So I kind of went, hey, we should do a podcast together. Uh, to be yeah, and I'm I'm actually fairly bad with that stuff. Like I haven't even read Dune. I I started it, but you haven't read Dune. You have, no, I haven't. You can never be the Kwisatz Tetarach. <laughs> Um, I know what that means. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, as the movie approaches for next year, we're all going to be talking about. Uh, yeah, I, I plan. I have it. I have a copy. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. So we kind of went. Oh, hey, we should do a pod. Well, that's the thing. So we kind of complement each other uh, in our knowledge of of this stuff to a degree. We're all we're coming at this as you know, informed novices is how I would describe. Yeah, us. I think. That, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, because we have read a lot of this stuff, and, and part of the reason we're doing this is to kind of look at the, like, to try to assemble a larger threads. You know, we do, we're not trying to look at uh, at books completely in isolation here. We're trying to sort of place them in the context of the larger history of sci-fi and fantasy, and, you know, how it affected our culture, and, oh, there's this idea you see a lot, and where did that come from? For instance, our uh, our third show, um, uh, is about a vampire city, uh, a, a French book, and it, it it's a very weird take on vampires. But it allows us to sort of it allowed us to sort of talk about uh, how the evolution, how vampires have evolved in fiction over the years in different ways. And uh, just as we'll talk about you know historically significant books, we'll also talk about uh, books that are like completely obscure and they're cul-de-sacs right they didn't they don't yeah. represent an evolution they represent kind of a, a dead end essentially but that lets us talk about the evolution of things so yeah and also just uh, you know how things could have been if if maybe this caught on mm -hmm. exactly so you know we're, we're trying to sort of put together a, a larger um a larger uh you know, a, a, a through line, I guess you'd say, of a lot of different yeah. things. Uh, and, and, and we've we've come across um, certain themes that we weren't expecting. Like um, um, in, in an early book, we did uh, the Adventures of Saturn and Ferendel, which is a comedic sort of parody of Jules Verne. It has a bit where he's um, um, he goes up against or, or runs into nihilist terrorists. And we thought that was a joke, but that that's a thing that keeps coming up. Yeah, it was an actual like semi. It you know nowadays it's a it's a slur basically, or a, or a not a slur, but a a dismissive term for uh, for people. But it was apparently a legitimate political philosophy, or it was at least you know or a philosophy anyway that that some people took yeah. seriously. And they it's like we we thought it was just a parody of anarchists, but it, it turns out it. Like there were actually people who called themselves nihilists and mm -hmm. committed terrorist acts. So yeah. Well, I see. I I kind of knew that was a philosophical point. I didn't know that people would necessarily call it a framework for their entire thought. But I did know there were people. Yeah. Who's, I did well, know it was. A, I, I knew it was a thing. I mean, right. It's a big Lebowski joke and all that. But right. Uh, well, um, I, but I, I mean, I didn't realize that it was something people would fight for. Like it's yeah. like it's also a, a joke on the tick with. Uh, they they believe in nothing and they want to go to nothing and right. um an alien culture that wants to stop all existence because they believe in nothing right and that i mean yeah like so yeah i would have accepted it as a philosophical precept but i didn't realize there were literally political movements of people who however small who were kind of fighting for you know nihilism um you know yeah. as they say say what you will about the 
tenets of national socio- socialism, dude. Um, but uh, <laughs> at least it's an ethos. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> well, it is an ethos, apparently. So there you go. Walter was wrong. Um, but yeah, it's... as he was with many things. <laughs> and um, yeah, so and and there's just been yeah the 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 degree to which uh, sci-fi is actually very political, uh, especially around the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There's there's a very strong um, ele- especially element of sort of socialism and 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 anarchism uh, in the writing up that time up to about World War II. Uh, you can argue it gets a little tamed after that uh, in the sense of you know it, it becomes you talk about politics metaphorically in after World War II than you do uh, you know directly going yes as you know socialist. Uh, one of the books we end up talking about is called Angel of the Revolution. Um, and it, it quite literally lays out a, a near future history and a socialist revolution. Uh, they get hold of airships and they start, you know, reshaping the world into what is very explicitly a, a manifesto for socialism. Uh, but yeah, uh, and it's um, and it like it, they're successful in the end, and the sequel takes place a hundred years later. With mm-hmm. you know, there's been peace all this time, and but the the Tsar families, the the Romanov family starts coming back. So right that that causes conflict again so that that's an interesting yeah um thing you wouldn't see in something published after world war Two. right yeah or or if you would it wouldn't be as you know highly the, the 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 political dynamics that we're familiar with were starting to lock into place and you know going outright going yay socialism was a little outre i'm, I'm not going to say there weren't any books that were pro-socialist but um uh, generally like you know you look at something like star trek and people identify it with socialism uh, to a large degree. They kind of talk about how it's the, you know, gay luxury space communism future, but it's, uh, you know, it's never overtly identified as that. And there are episodes of Star Trek that you could interpret as more neoliberal or even reactionary. So it's, it's yeah, kind of, and we discussed that in our Star Trek episode. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, but even just science fiction in general, it, it became, it, it, the shift went away from specific politics and into, um, into like the way the technology will shape our our it was almost more like instead of using politics and our our minds to shape technology it became technology will shape our minds in certain ways that may or may not be relevant to modern politics and of course yeah with, or or in some cases everything's the same politically but we have ray guns yeah exactly well that became, which isn't as common as you would think mm-hmm. um yeah that that sort of um idea of what pulp is uh isn't really accurate. Um, I mean, there were stuff like that, but it's not the majority of um, of what was out there at the time. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think we haven't looked as much at that stuff uh, as we will, uh, we might in the future. Like there, there definitely is pulp stuff that you know, as we discuss in the episodes about westerns, we talk about how uh, in the a lot of western writers, they you know, if they couldn't sell a western, they just rewrite it and put in you know ray guns instead of six shooters and uh, you know, spaceships instead of train heists and, and slap all the changes onto it and, and call it a, a sci-fi novel. And, you know, that was a common thing. Plus, of course, that there, you know, there's a fairly common element in, uh, in uh, again, especially getting into the post-World War II era, although it does go back before that, where it, there's a reactionary aspect to it where they, they want to, even though it's supposed to be the literature of the future and human imagination, they want to kind of frame it into, into a a framework that where you know we we see it in a way that can be used by more conservative small c elements um 
you know, like just the kind of you know space commies are coming to take our women kind of thing. You know, like that that yeah that definitely that, that's does a, exist. That's a later development though. Yeah, that and, and that's a direct reaction to um, mm-hmm. various real world things happening. Yeah. Well, and and I actually I want to specifically uh, point that to uh, some 20th century developments. So we'll we'll get back. We'll put a pin in that and come back to it. But uh, for now, I actually want to rewind a bit and talk about um, just the very very origin because this is a discussion that keeps coming up sort of you know what's the origin of speculative fiction or science fiction science fiction especially uh fantasy you know we can say well fantasy existed as soon as somebody told a story it was probably about gods and demons and things like that but um science fiction you know where where do you put the line phil where would you say the beginning of um, science fiction? well of stuff we know about because most books that have ever been written haven't survived to the present day. Yeah. Um, so there's probably a bunch out there that that we don't know that are um, probably fit into the science fiction category. But I, I take things pretty broad, and I count uh, true history as, as the earliest surviving uh, science fiction story. That's um, um, from the 2nd century AD, a, uh, uh, a Greek uh, writer um, or a uh, philosopher, uh, named uh, Lucian of Samosata. Um, uh, he was um, born in um, Assyria, and, um, but he was considered himself culturally Greek, and he spoke Greek. Um, and uh, he wrote a parody of uh, travelogues from the time that people took seriously, and also the, the tendency to take things like the Odyssey and the Iliad as historical fact. And so he wrote a completely ridiculous... Um, sprawling adventure uh, with the explicit um, moral of don't believe any of this. <laughs> um, but it has various um, satirical elements in it. It's very uh, much a precursor to sort of Gulliver's Travels in a lot of ways. But it, on early, very early on in the book, uh, his ship um, gets swept up in a geyser, um, in like a, um, yeah, a geyser. And... Um, he uh, he winds up on the moon, where uh, there's a war between the people of the moon who ride giant three-headed vultures and other animals, and the people of the sun. And so there's you know a space war, and it's all like there's no science elements in it because they're they're riding animals that can apparently go through space, and there's giant centaurs um, and um, other creatures and this is only one part of the story because it comes back to earth and various other things happen um but um i I think there's at least the the starts of a lot of what we would consider science fiction there or at least the earliest examples that we can point to historically right i mean the fact that they go to uh outer space uh obviously is a is a is a is a thing you can look at um, you know, it becomes because there isn't really an attempt uh, to base it on science. I mean, almost the specific idea of not making it scientific because <laughs> it's supposed to be a bit silly and, and fantastical, right? Like it's not meant to be totally serious, right? No, it's not meant to be serious whatsoever. No. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I could I could see the argument that it counts as more as fantasy or whatnot. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of these um, distinctions are a bit arbitrary. I mean genres aren't a solid set in stone thing they're a thing we make up after the art to describe what the art is not something that 
art necessarily has to fit into rigidly. Right. That's my that's my thinking on it anyway. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's a categorization thing uh, that comes not necessarily after the fact, but certainly uh, you know it's when you're looking at at trends and so forth. Um, and I mean, certainly the elements. But what you're describing, certainly the elements of what we would call science fiction, are there, even if the 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 actual motive isn't you know to explore something that's quote yeah. scientifically possible or or even plausible. Um, but neither is Star Wars, and I know there's arguments about that. But I would definitely consider Star Wars science fiction. Yeah, I, it can I would be other too. things too, but, but it's got spaceships. Come on. Well, here, I mean, well, to look at another uh, uh, writer from the era you're describing, um, you know, Plato is um, his work. I would, you know, it's it's hard not to look at him and see the origins of, or not the origins, but certainly uh, some of the early, uh, ideas of science fiction, like, because when he writes about, and I'm not, I'm sorry, I don't know if this is Timaeus, Critias, or one of his other things that he wrote, but when he writes about, um, uh, for instance, the famous, uh, parable of the cave, um, which, you know, the shot that someone's, if someone was chained to a wall and only saw, and only ever saw shadows go past, he'd mistake that for reality. And also the story about, you know, someone who found an invisible ring and was able to go and, uh, and commit, crimes with it and he wouldn't be bound by conventional morality uh like those are very not only are those very much science fiction style ideas they've of course literally been rated for science fiction like science fiction uh you know has developed those ideas just put them in a framework of okay well we have the technology to actually explore that ideas like the matrix is yeah like the invisible man yeah the invisible mm -hmm. man is more or less directly taken from plato like he just he created a, a serum that made it plausible or whatever but it's 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 that exact same idea so i mean even though there's no science element it's the whole idea of well let's do a thought experiment and let's like look yeah. at let's look also at what the that whole atlantis mean. thing that plato came up with sure is something he made up but yeah yeah uh, and i mean and well and that links it to something to like you know you go later on to something like um uh, uh gulliver's travels which has the same element of like well i'm going to create a society that's obviously made up and ridiculous in this case it's looking at you know social science fiction it's looking at uh and, and of course creating these to parody uh the world uh, as it was in uh, in uh, uh swift's day but he was writing it as um you know like oh it was partly a parody but also partly a the, the first few stories are essentially tied directly to uh you know europe and then america and it's the idea of you know a, a uh, a theological oppressive society and a more free libertine society. Then he starts to potentially deal with more sort of what if societies with when he talks to Laputa and the Island of the Huynhams, because the Island of Huynhams is very much like his, you know, castigation of humanity and all the worst thing, worst elements of human nature, as it were. Um, so like that, that's, that's obviously a big science fiction element as well, even though it's again, what we would technically call fantasy. Um, and then there's things like Pilgrim's Progress and, and, and all these kinds of things that happen uh, through the years. Now, I would argue that um, to really, I, I think you can make a good case. I'm sorry, I'm not going to make any firm arguments because it can be debated endlessly. But I think one of the reasons people point to Frankenstein as sort of, quote, the first science fiction story is that it's post-Enlightenment and post-Industrial Revolution. Um, yeah, but even then, it's not the first. Sure. There, there's others from around that time, a little earlier. Uh, I have one here. Um, I, it's a very short story with a very long title, so I'm going to try to read this whole thing, um, the title. 
Um, a journey lately performed through the air in an aerostatic globe, commonly called an air balloon, from this terraqueous globe to the newly discovered planet Georgium Sidus by uh, <laughs> Mr. Vivenair. It's a short story, uh, sort of a Gulliver's Travels ripoff from um, 1784, uh, in which a man uh, uh, uses an air balloon uh, to travel to uh, Uranus, or Uranus. Mm-hmm. Um, which had just been discovered. So also the air balloon had just been discovered. So it's basically hard sci-fi for the time, you know, newly discovered things. Right. It's it's ridiculous though, but yeah. And no, they, of they, course. He, but he goes to Uranus, and the the people have um, two bodies that face in different directions, um, joined at the back, so that you know they're two faced. So they all act like mm-hmm. it's a parody of the court of King George. So right. Um, well, here, but here's the yeah, thing. So, so, so it does that. What you're describing, I mean, that's again, as you say, Gulliver's Travels, and it's going back to the uh, the. Uh, sorry, what was the writer Epicurus who wrote the the Adventures, the the one you you mentioned before? Oh, True History. Um, uh, sorry, Lucian. Lucian. Yeah. Um, you know, you can see the same uh, element there that it existed since forever of just what if something weird i went a fantastical place and there were weird things i mean again no no arguing that that goes way back and you're right in that that ties it to something technological i guess the the fact that they had i mean i guess they had balloons at that point like hot air balloons and the idea just recently though they like it had just been, it was a new discovery right as well as and the planet was as well right right so that you, you i mean obviously you're right and it depends on what aspect of science fiction you're looking at specifically and that that's not even like the the earliest like modern that's just like a very obvious mm-hmm. you know technology like if you want to take the idea that science fiction has to be about how technology advances things right you can point to that that predates frankenstein by by a few decades right so. for sure like not i i don't when i do this i don't mean to throw shade on frankenstein because it's a great book yeah um and it's an important book it just it's not the first and it kind of annoys me when people say that it is for sure just just as a pedantic thing but you i would argue that i think the thing significance of uh frankenstein is it does bring together a number of different elements in a way like it's got that platonic idea of uh, you know, what if, and what would the meaning of this be, and what would the philosophical and moral connotations of this be, together with, uh, you know, a technology of a sort, uh, you know, the idea of, of uh, you know, and, and again, it was, it was fantastical, it wasn't something even Mary Shelley probably thought was uh, plausible. Yeah, I mean, the, but, there's elements of, like, galvanization. And right, gal- galvanic, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not directly said that it, that's how he was created, but it's sort of implied. In right. the book, it doesn't really go into the details of how the creature was created, unlike the movies, mm-hmm. which uh, tend to play that aspect up. Right. And, but but that's just the thing. Like, it was inspired by technological trends. So in, in that sense. so it is a it is kind of a perfect storm but in that sense. But also, in, in a lot of ways, a throwback to al- alchemy and stuff, because it directly sure. referenced Paracelsus and right. Well, so and that's Well, and that's the funny thing, because alchemy was... Like early, early attempts to do. Or is like, it Paracelsus? I always get that wrong. Uh, uh, Paracelsus, sure. Um, okay. But that's a really early. But that's the thing, because alchemy was like a pre-enlightenment attempt to do science. <laughs> so where does that fit on the scale, right? Like it's not, you know, they weren't necessarily thinking scientifically, but they were clearly dabbling with things that were that would become science, right? That's alchemy. Yeah, yeah. Alchemy. Um, so but alchemy has a strong spiritual element sure. to it. 
That's like half the thing. Right. Um, and uh, obviously, like um, uh, guys like Isaac Newton were also alchemists and scientists. So there was people who who dabbled in both things quite late in the game. Right. Right. And, and I mean, it, it is the shift of the Enlightenment thinking to from, you know, oh, you know, we can never understand all these weird forces that exist to maybe we can, right? Like, And that was... Yeah, well, whether... alchemy's, um, alchemy's partially a bridge to that, I think. Right. Um, because they, they try to codify certain things. And mm -hmm. there's a spiritual element, but it's tied to the physical, you know, as below, so above. Right. Or as above, so below, whichever. Right. I think it works both ways, but yeah. Uh, anyway, but so moving forward a bit, um, it's... Um, yeah, it, well, actually moving backwards a bit, I just want to name some that I like. Okay. Uh, is that okay? Sure. That we're, we're not going to discuss probably as episodes, but... Uh, okay. Did you know Cyrano de Bergerac was a real person and that he wrote sci-fi novels? Mm -hmm. I did um, know that, yes. Yeah. Probably because I told you. <laughs> no, I knew. Um, well, I knew he was a real guy and he wrote about going to the moon and so forth. And yeah. Again, I thought those uh, were yeah, kind of whimsical, he, satirical... You know, true history stuff. I mean, like I said, I, I take it pretty broadly, and it, it is very philosophical, mm -hmm. um, like comedic so philosophical in his case, but uh, um, he does deal with real issues and stuff uh, by the societies on the moon and sun. Right. Um, well, that's usually the purpose of that kind of writing, is to comment on either your, the society you live in, maybe something specific, or even just broadly talk about human nature yeah. and, and that kind or, of thing. Or... Uh, an even earlier one, uh, Johann Kepler, uh, who is the um, scientist, mm -hmm. uh, famous scientist. Um, uh, he wrote a uh, early story called Somnium, uh, which is framed as a dream. So, because uh, he was, he got in trouble for it, even though he framed it as a dream. But that was sort of a a way to uh, avoid uh, controversy. Um, though it wasn't actually published till after his death. So, yeah. It didn't quite work, but uh, it, it's uh, about somebody being sent up to the moon, and it's uh, various creatures uh, that live on the moon. Uh, it doesn't deal with any social situations. Um, it's just about uh, how creatures under different conditions would survive. So it is sort of um, um, fairly hard sci-fi for the time, for the 1600s, you know. Right. Like it talks about how uh, creatures with less, under less lesser gravity would would survive and the ideas of the um uh the sun um you know the part of the moon that faces the sun and they they'd have like porous skin to absorb the heat but <laughs> the ones from the other side would um be uh survive in the cold and so forth so i mean there's some pretty uh interesting thinking going on in that short story yeah okay well that's kind of cool oh as you say it was you said it was kepler right and he was a yeah he was a scientist so that makes sense um yeah, most most of these stories don't really deal with um, like the phys like until later the idea that the moon is lesser gravity, which is something they would have known, um, but uh, it's not really dealt with for the most part. Um, there is a um, uh, there's a story called uh, usually translated now as the Man in the Moon uh, by uh, Francis Goodwin or Godwin, Francis Godwin. Sorry, um, that's the title is usually uh, given as Man of the Moon. It's an English story, so it's not a translation, but uh, it has a longer title with unusual for the time, you know, a title that goes on and on. Right. But um, he travels to the moon on a machine um, uh, driven by uh, geese that can also go through space. Um, 
but it has a part where when he's traveling it describes the effects of gra- of no gravity on somebody so right that, that so also sort of deals with it in some ways right right so they're thinking about that kind of thing well but uh, so that's you know so so those are the two sort of threads it's d- the degree to which you're dealing with you know reality as you've started to understand it especially you know as the enlightenment comes along and people start to understand more and more about the world whether they're a scientist or not just the the idea that oh we can build things that let us fly or whatever like that just people have that understanding and it's going to affect their fiction even if they have no scientific understanding whatsoever and as they gain more literacy and i mean it's worth noting that um you know when when you know pulp fiction um effectively uh as i understand it um you know that that sort of starts to appear at about the same time that the populace starts to become literate enough. And again, it's it's post enlightenment, post industrial revolution. They start to get literate enough that they can read for pleasure in a way that you know the Middle Ages you wouldn't get. You'd only get the lords and ladies and then the nobility who'd be able to read. Uh, but once it became a bit more populist, uh, that's effectively where Pulp Fiction started to come from. And that yeah, that kind Though of writing, there was also a period where novels in general were seen as uh, frivolous. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, they were the, um, the, the they were for women. You know, no, yeah. <laughs> novels um, in general. Um, and it, although it is interesting, Though even when they began to be res- novels as an art form began to be respected. It was still the sort of they started to form the idea that genre fiction was not to be respected. Right. Well, as we, yeah, I mean, Jess Jess argued uh, that in the 19th century, uh, genre sci-fi fiction was not looked down upon as it was maybe a bit later. Like as you get into the 20th century, I'd say they start to maybe start to say, well, that's that's a different kind of fiction, and 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 I mean, again, the influence of the pulps uh, really starting to kick in and becoming a popularist. Uh, form of fiction, which was often very reactionary. That's that's one of the aspects. Again, we we've got these different. There's kind of a dialectic going on in science fiction where for every uh, idea you come in, that's this radical, uh, you know, futurist notion uh, of like human possibility and you know what you might think of as more libertine or more leftist. Then there'd be some counterposting that's that where it's just you know blatant propaganda. It's you know racist or it's sexist and it's about you know it's 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 almost and and I I do believe a lot of that is actively pushing back. Uh, some of it just mm-hmm. kind of fell into that mode without having a strong political mindset. But I think some of it did specifically push back. Like if somebody would write science fiction, and as we've seen, a lot of it is you know has a very socialist character, has a very uh, you know, th- for a long time, the sort of the dreams of a, a utopian future were the province of socialist thinkers and leftist and anarchist thinkers. Like it wasn't, you know, the monarchists were the ones who said, well, let's keep everything the same. Let's, and you know, if, if you weren't a monarchist, you were on some degree, you were probably vaguely socialist, even if you weren't an outright, you know, communist or whatever, y- you would kind of probably have a sympathy for that. And, and, and it tended to be because, uh, you know, Marxism especially was linked to this idea of industrial ramping up and industrial production. And, and, and it was kind of b- based on, you know, human potential and, and, and the things we could build. And, and so they were, they had a real fascination with technology through the 19th, all the way up into the space race of the sixties. Um, and I, at a certain point, science fiction started you know one of the things science fiction did was to reclaim that for arguably a more conservative mindset a less you know less tied in with something that might be called socialism uh especially in the post-world war ii era but even before that it was no yeah um one example i i can give is uh, mafarka the futurist uh an italian uh novel from uh, 1910 by um 
Filippo uh, Tommaso Martin uh, Marinetti, um, which is a uh, uh, it's a manifesto in book form from the author's uh, own words, um, and it's um, basically proto-fascist. It's uh, from 1910, but it's a futurist, uh, and futurism was one of the um, movements mm. that led into uh, outright fascism, and it right. has a lot of um, uh, fascist ideology in it. Mm. Um, it's very, very reactionary, very misogynistic, I mean, outright. Um, yeah. It, uh, it has a... Um, it has the main character creating an artificial life form um, uh, that would be pure and untainted because it wasn't born of woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's see. Well, see now. So this is one of the the ironies is that uh, you know if you're writing in the 19th century, you know science fiction tends to you know you're very good, strong chance you're, you've got that socialist aspect, like I said, because you're dreaming of a better future, whether it's literally through the the real world political process or the idea of what humans could accomplish uh you know they're they're kind of go hand in hand but as society starts to slide more towards uh incorporating these ideas incorporating more um egalitarianism and more you know and and moving away from things like nobility and and uh you know having having issues with you know a, a you know a landed gentry or a group of powerful people uh and and there's there's a bit more and the technology starts to happen in real life as well you start to get you know uh, whether it's uh electricity or um the the invention of the telephone or and then and, and the, the the motor car so these things start to come along in real life which were science fiction not that long ago and then you start to see people who are living in this world dream of uh, rolling things back in some ways is like ah, oh, wouldn't it be a, a great world if you know women were back in the home you know and they were instead of yeah and you suffered and, and to a time that didn't really ever exist because we're always mm -hmm. you know there, there's there's quotes from i think plato complaining about kids today you know yeah, they yeah. don't respect their elders and stuff so yeah right it's like a thing that is always there the idea that things were better in my day because yeah things were rosier when you were a kid because you didn't understand everything. Yeah. And that's, and I mean, you can, you can sort of, you can twist that into science fiction and say, what if a future and, and paint that as progress because it's moving away from the way things are now, uh, instead yeah. of back to the way things are now. But that actually, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the, the genres, um, the sub genres of science fiction nowadays, um, they're, they don't have to be that way, but a lot of them like steampunk and, mm -hmm. and diesel punk and stuff, uh, a lot of them are sort of um, retrograde in uh, in their political things. I don't think they have to be. I don't think they should be. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot a lot of people are attracted to the old fashioned values, so to speak. Right, and and I mean that's that the uh, the that's the irony that um, you know now that we have this body of literature of science fiction and fantasy to draw on that is actually old. Like if you're looking back at Jules Verne, that's a hundred years old, but it was science fiction and forward looking at the time. But now it looks yeah. kind of quaint and alt, alt future essentially, and that's kind of the cool. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know much about Jules Verne's own politics, but like H.G. Wells would not agree with a lot of these people. Yeah, uh, who are using his his ideas in there. Yeah, I, like, okay, H.G. Wells had a lot of problems with his politics as well with the eugenics, but yeah. he was a socialist as well. So yeah, um, well, it is interesting yeah. that um, you say that. Like, yeah, I, I've I've heard a few people say that that steampunk has this kind of 
reactionary conservative streak to it, um, which I'll take your word for it because I don't know much about like modern steampunk. What I know of steampunk, I, I think just just some of the subculture stuff. I'm not talking about any specific works, um, okay? Because I, I honestly haven't read a lot of um, mm-hmm. um, steampunk novels uh, or some you know modern steampunk novels. I've read stuff that steampunk is based on, but. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of the the subculture does have people who are like you know just in it for the fashion or the the old fashions sure aesthetics yeah. and stuff yeah I mean um, it's always the the cosplay girls with like you know yeah. dyed hair well, and and corsets and weird monocles yeah I've, and I've nothing gears. against cosplay and stuff but like <laughs> uh, I I think um, say the punk aspect is lost in a lot of cases yeah yeah uh, one know. of the one of the books we actually do want to read and it's actually by the way we have a very loose rule it's very loose it's not something we're a hundred percent formal on but a very loose rule that we don't look at anything before ni- or the past 1980 uh, everything we've looked at is going back further than that because it's meant to be uh, influenced however one thing we have considered looking at is uh the book that uh inspired the term cyber uh, sorry steampunk uh, which apparently is very different from uh, what people think of as steampunk because it really was punk. It was really meant to be weird and surrealist. Apparently, Paul Filippo wrote uh, what's called a steampunk trilogy uh, in 1995, and that was the use of the phrase steampunk for the first time. Um, apparently, it's much more like the emphasis is on the weird part and the, the, the punk part more than nowadays. They just say, you know, retro sci-fi is steampunk, <laughs> but that was the original pick. It Yeah. And we did talk about the difference engine as well. That was another book that might, um, that might've had uh, an influence as well. So oh, th- also Moorcock wrote some, some early steampunk stuff in the early nineties, I believe. Right. Yeah. There's the, no, uh, the, the, the Moorcock, Lord of the air. Yeah. Lord of the air is like the seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, it was. It was uh, again. It, w- it was obviously going. Hey, I'm going to write like H.G. Wells. Even oh, yeah, you're right. Seventy one. Yeah. Yep. So he's been. But but again, that wasn't. So that's what we would call steampunk. But it wasn't called steampunk at the time. Yeah. Um, okay. But also, when when talking about all this sort of uh, this idea of bringing the past into the present and calling it the future, um, I did actually want to quickly just talk about fantasy too, because while we can obviously say, you know, again, fantasy, pure fantasy, obviously goes back to as soon as two people started telling stories to each other back in the very dawn of time. Uh, But I do feel like there should be some kind of acknowledgement or a cutting off point for the different cycles of fantasy. Like, because as we got into the enlightenment era, we did start to consider realism or even science fiction in the terms of, well, this has to have a plausible explanation for itself. Uh, That became the, the dominant mode of storytelling so that to actively go back and say, there's elves and stuff um, like that becomes like a deliberate literary choice. Right. And that mm-hmm. marks it apart from, and I mean, you know, we never stopped having kids fairy tales and, and, and the, the, the more, uh, the more lighthearted stuff that, that would be called fantasy. Um, Though, I, um, like even that sort of goes back to, I mean, it existed in Elizabethan times with um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and um, right. Um, the the fairy queen um and uh the dream uh shakespeare's dream that was controversial because the inclusion of fairies in it um and he there had to be like a um some um things in the play itself to to um appease christian audiences like uh mm. like uh, oberon saying that the 
church bells don't offend him, so right. he's not he's not actually a demon, so it's okay. <laughs> right. Well, but if, well, but see, there the framework is more uh, like of a moral and, as you say, Christian framework, as opposed to the idea that, like, because I, again, I wouldn't say pure realism was the dominant mode of Shakespeare's day necessarily. No. Um, I think there were there were but, obviously, but even there, uh, say with the Fairy Queen, there is a um, uh, intentional throwback to older forms of storytelling, right? Um, mixed with modern modern forms. So yeah, um, that that's a thing that that's been around for a while, and it predates that obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you're right in, in the modern in the modern era, there is um, sort of a de- deliberate codifying of some of this stuff um, into um, I suppose more rigid genres that sort of started coming up in the 20th century. Yeah, uh, I, I, the, I think I, think I, I mean talk- uh, the codifying. I mean the the um, yeah. putting it into genres in the 20th century. I, uh, there was a lot of stuff uh, that I I would consider fantasy in the modern sense that was in the Victorian era and so forth. That's sort of where it came from. Yeah, I think I think um, as we you mentioned the whole thing about the novel, you know, being seen as uh, a bit of a a trashy genre, <laughs> maybe not trashy, but a frivolous genre for, as you say, for, for women. But then as that started to take, be taken a bit more seriously and you started to have more male authors writing uh, like fictional, but non fantastical novels. Uh, I think that's about where you could put a pin and say, okay, that's where it became, you know, a different kind of literary choice to say, well, this is going to be a fantasy novel. It's going to be for adults. Um, we talked about Jurgen at one point in, in this story and he was, you know, he was writing a satirical adult fantasy novel. Uh, that's clearly, you know, it was, it was very scandalous at the time. And that, that's, that, you know, that's part and parcel of it to say, you know, yeah, we're, we're writing a, a novel for adults with, you know, all these crazy fairy tale elements and Arthurian elements and so on. Uh, I don't know if that would have been incredibly common at the time. I think there was a, there was a break in the late Victorian era where even speculative fiction would be, quote science fiction instead of uh, you know something that was that was purely fantastical um i I think that happened uh, there were a few different cycles too because like then there was like tolkien which was world war ii era and that obviously started it but the pulp fantasy and and dunsany i mean we've discussed uh lord dunsany uh, a bunch on the show right Uh, he's actually one of my favorite authors um and um um, he sort of represents a uh, road not taken with fantasy that uh, was sort of uh, over overtaken by uh, Tolkien later. Um, mm-hmm. um, but um, but he was Dunsany's... very influenced at that time. Like I think that there's definitely like I I think Jurgen wouldn't exist, for instance, without Dunsany and obviously Lovecraft and I think a lot of the oh, yeah. fantasy writers. He, yeah, he was very influential at the time, but he's sort of forgotten now. Uh, yeah. I think in our episode. Uh, the, the quote came up. I can't remember who said it, but um, that Lord Dunsany is your favorite fantasy author's favorite fantasy author. Right, exactly. And uh, he's being a bit of a comeback, I think. But yeah, it's I, yeah, yeah. It, it's true. Like I, I definitely, I got into a. I think I mentioned this on another show. I, you know, I got into an argument online. Always a mistake. Uh, with some people who are like, well, I mean, Tolkien invented modern fantasy. I'm like, well, oh, you know, God. <laughs> there, that there are lots of other examples from before that. It's just that. Tolkien codified it into what we think of as high fantasy, with you know elaborate, um, elaborate world building and and. Although he specific. didn't invent that either, there there was secondary worlds before Tolkien, like uh, the Worm Robberus, which is um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not 
that's technically set on Mercury, though that's sort of right. a weak framing device for some stuff. But um, uh, it's basically uh, an alternate European uh, universe right. style universe yeah. with uh, its own geography and stuff. But well, actually, does work. I made a map out of it actually. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also like um, if you go to you know Edgar Rice Burroughs, he has John Carter of Mars, which is science fiction, but it's framed a hundred percent as a you know, a pure fantasy, but you know, because yeah. you can frame it in, well, maybe this is what it is like on Mars. You can, you can get away with a lot or you could at that particular time. Uh, and people didn't seem to have as much of a problem with it. Uh, and of course there's no scientific explanation for how he got there. He just sort of yeah. astral projects himself. Well, again, it, and th and that's uh, as we talk about in the very, what, if you're watching the, listening to these in order, it'll be the very next episode, the call episode. We talk about how uh, Blavatsky and some of the other people of the turn of the century introduced all these uh, very, uh, very kooky ideas about, you know, and, and there was a whole rise of spiritualism, which was often somewhat linked to the idea that it could be scientifically <laughs> framed in some ways, like ectoplasm was seen as, I mean, it wasn't yep. real scientists wouldn't have taken it seriously, but, you know, the common people or people who are into that stuff could, you know, could believe that it was, quote, scientific in a framework. Yeah, the um, the Karnacki um, uh, supernatural detective character, um, he would uh, mix um, the ghost finding things with uh, modern science. So, like, you would uh, create a trap for a spirit using uh, neon um, pipes. So it's sort of... Because right. that those were new at the time, so like it, you know, mm -hmm. must have some sort of supernatural property or something. Ghostbusters, same yeah. idea, right? You know, and the, and that's yep. even going all the way up to uh, yeah, Dan Aykroyd's apparently. Well, uh, yeah, Dan Aykroyd believed that stuff <laughs> <laughs> about that kind of thing, and to this day, and all the Fortean phenomenon type of stuff, they believe there might be some bridge to scientifically uh, to scientifically explain the. The fantastical in that way, the super, the 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 specifically the paranormal and you know pe ghosts and things like that. Um, we're we're coming up, we're we're going pretty long, but I did I, I did just want to uh, briefly mention one other thing from the 20th century that does mark out the show uh, as we've done it. Uh, there's one person in particular, John W. Campbell. Uh, he comes up quite a bit in some of the later shows, um, and he was an incredibly influential uh, editor, actually, although he did also write stories. Uh, in the immediate pre-World War II through to, you know, 1950s and 60s. Uh, he was the editor of Astounding Magazine. He had a certain uh, approach and attitude to science fiction, which to this day is kind of the framework uh, of science fiction as we understand it, that it has to have some vague attempt at scientific realism. Uh, in fact, he, he liked to claim it should be all about the scientific realism, although, of course, none of them really were. Uh, but he was a scientist, and a lot of the people who wrote for him, uh, people like Heinlein and Asimov, had some actual uh, scientific background. Um, and he was also very racist and very reactionary in his science fiction. Uh, he also opened the door for L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who was another one of his writers. Uh, and he'd start, he started to do some of the same thing we're talking about, codifying, like he's, he thought you could codify psychology uh, and history, which is something that you know he talked about with Isaac Asimov, who created his psychohistory series uh but he he the idea that all these uh all these ideas that we had uh you know psychological and and cultural could be codified scientifically uh that was a big uh hobby horse of yeah uh, of oh, also came up in the starship troopers novel with the idea that you could uh 
do morality with mathematics. Right, exactly. Um, and, and make proofs for why something's right or not, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, and, 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 yeah, that also came out of his influence. Yeah. That aspect, anyway. Yeah, it was the sort of, you know, everything must be viewed through a very scientific mindset, a th- very orderly, structured mindset. Uh, Andrew Hickey uh, mentioned in the Heinlein episode, you know, he's uh, he's he's on the spectrum, and he mentioned he thought a lot of uh, science fiction writers at the time were, uh, or writers and fans probably had uh, a, ver- a strong sympathy with that mindset of just, we like to codify things, we like to, you know... Yeah, and, and, and to this- I-, I am too, and I do as well. Yeah. Um, though, um, I-, I try to fight that uh, as much as I can, because I mm-hmm. think sometimes... Uh, we get too rigid with some of these things uh, in mm-hmm. terms of um, what is this and what is that. You know, I think it's a uh, it's a spectrum, like like autism itself. Uh, a lot a lot of these genres are a spectrum. You know, science fiction is sure. is a grouping of ideas rather than having to have all of them. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I mean, in fact, that's well. And then it's it's worth noting that uh, there was a strong pushback against that. And this is something else we talk about, which is the new wave of science fiction, uh, which hit in the uh, mid mid sixties, uh, especially under uh, the purview of Harlan Ellison and uh, the Dangerous Visions anthology, uh, which we have mentioned we mentioned one or t- once or twice. And we do need to really do a deep dive into that at some point. Um, but um, it, 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 it had a, a it very much pushed back against the Campbellian mode of, no, this is all very codified and very technological with, no, we're going to have it be purely literary. It's going to be often dreamlike and surreal. There's going to be a focus on the prose and the literary merits and the interiorization of the characters. Uh, and we're not really good. And, you know, it can, it's not that it can't be scientifically accurate, but it's not going to be a focus on what's scientifically accurate. It's going to be focused on how does that affect people? You know, how do people feel when they live in a world of spaceships and robots, as it were? Um, and sometimes it became completely, uh, fantastical as it were, but it, 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 yeah. it, and yeah, those elements have always been part of the, um, I mean, that, that's when it became very clear, a clear divide, but that's, always been sort of the back and forth with science fiction in general. Like Verne and H.G. Wells had um, uh, disputes over uh, scientific accuracy and so forth. But, right. Uh, Verne complained that um, Cavorite is not a real thing that exists, so <laughs> you, you have to explain how you go to space. And yeah. Verne's explanation is you get shot out of a big cannon. <laughs> uh, which turns out to be less accurate than you know making up you know discovering a new metal that can yeah <laughs> propel you into yeah. space yeah it's it is funny sometimes how something that wasn't even really attempted as being a serious you know science fiction concept sometimes kind of comes true in real life like those things do happen uh once in a while it, it's notable and, and a lot of the time when you try to make things hard sci-fi it gets dated really quickly exactly yeah a lot of what campbell which is not to say it's not worth writing it just um mm-hmm. that's uh that's a problem you, you face with it i believe the um uh 2001 space odyssey books um each one takes place in a different universe technically because uh there's been scientific discoveries in between the books being written. Yeah, I, I think we have uh, a lot of really good episodes. Uh, some that I would suggest uh, are the Steel Commander. That's that's I think one of our our better ones. It's about a um, uh, a novel within a novel from an alternate universe where Hitler became a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have a lot of interesting things to say about um, the connection between. Um, well, we've talked about it in this as well, but a lot of fascist ideology that creeps into 
later science fiction works. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would recommend um, we've ta- we did talk about it, but one of Jess Nevin's uh, uh, episodes, which was um, Angel of the Revolution or uh, or yep. uh, a Terror in the Skies, is the name of the episode, uh, which talks about that uh, the Angel of the Revolution book, which is very interesting from a political standpoint. Uh, he's also in. Uh, Empire of Crime, which is the one where we talk about uh, Dr. Mabuse and the, uh, the the sort of rise of the supervillain uh, as a concept. Um, yeah, Jeff Justin Evans is always a great guest. He's been busy for when we were working on this season, mm-hmm. but uh, hopefully we can get him back at some point because yeah. he's always has a lot of really interesting stuff to say. Yeah, we would like to get him back. Zach Handlin was in um, the episode Architecture of Insanity, which we dealt with. Uh, we looked at um, uh, J.G. Ballard and and uh, High Rise, uh, and he also he, showed up. Yeah, the uh, the Stephen King episode, I think. He, yeah, that, that's what I'm going to say. He's he's yeah. number one, world number one Stephen King fan, so he was on uh, the, the Monster in the Mirror episode, which is about uh, actually Richard Bachman, the... Uh, Stephen King's pen name. Anyway, we'll be here all day if we list all our if we listed all our best episodes because there's so many of them. Uh, but yeah, those are some recommendations you might want to have a look at uh, with our show, and we're uh, we're very happy with how it's been going. So we are uh, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. We will be your co-pilots on this strange journey into the unknown. Uh, we want to thank, as always, our producer and engineer Alex Ross, who has been uh, very good about uh, you know uh, looking after our audio recording needs. Not so much during the pandemic, but we hope to be back in the studio uh, soon, uh, recording with him. Uh, also, Jack Furick, who wrote our theme song and has done uh, a lot of uh, uh, musical work for us. We really appreciate it. He's a he's a great musician. You can hire Jack, by the way. Uh, he is on Twitter as Jack Furick. Uh, if you shoot him a, a tweet, he will actually, uh, you can hire him to compose uh, music for your podcast as well. We'll, we'll put that out there. Um, what Mad Universe is supported by Patreons. Uh, so to, you can subscribe to either of us, uh, either um, I'm, Phil, uh, I'm Adam Prosser and uh, Philip Rice. You can look up either of our names on Patreon. Uh, Philip I'm has, Philip. I'm Philip. He's Philip. I'm Adam. <laughs> Me, Adam. You, Philip. Um <laughs> Philip Rice is one L. Adam Prosser has two S's. Uh, Google us either. Uh, Phil, uh, Phil is uh, Spear Half Falk with an F on Patreon, and I'm uh, Phantasmic Tales. P H A N T A S M I C Tales. T A L E S on pa- both on Patreon. Uh, if you subscribe to either of our uh, Patreons, you would you get to listen to this uh, show early when it airs. Uh, so that's kind of cool. Um, we put it up. Uh, try to put it up a week early um oh well, and there's also comics and illustrations and stuff on both. yes we do we do comics illustrations stories all kinds of uh, essays kinds of bonus stuff so it's well worth it um you can also and yeah the links to all that are below we're also on twitter facebook all that usual stuff uh but if you're listening to this via itunes spotify or stitcher which we are also available on via podcast catcher uh you could check those out at never sleeps network slash series slash what dash mad dash universe uh that's our main uh website where uh, we have all these links posted um and again as i say our facebook instagram and tumblr feeds uh we're on twitter as prankster 36 that's me uh philip is uh again spear half with an f underscore um, and then there's also yeah, somebody took the name because <laughs> somebody took the name Spear Havoc with no one has not tweeted. <laughs> yeah. And uh, WMU podcast is also the Twitter feed for just the podcast itself. Uh, we'd love to hear from you from questions with questions, comments or suggestions for books to look at for this podcast. 
In particular, if you like the show, please leave a review for us at iTunes or Stitcher or any of those other podcast catchers that we talked about. Um, so come along with us. Enjoy the show from here on. We hope to see you soon. And uh, let's go to the future together. Thank you.